Well, this morning, um, we are finishing up this series called Build This House um, in the book of Haggai. It has been a great um, wonder and joy uh, for me to preach this. In fact, I, uh, <laughs> one of the reasons that I chose Haggai, uh, to be perfectly honest, was because I had already studied it in the last year, and I thought, okay, I've already done a lot of this work, uh, uh, you know, putting that in. And the only reason I did that with my high school students was because there was a high schooler who said, I don't know anything about, uh, I don't know, Haggai. Can we study that? And I was like, all right, sure, let's do it. And so because of her whim, we've, uh, we've studied that, and I have really, really enjoyed this with you, and uh, hopefully we'll equally enjoy the conclusion this morning. Let me read for us the very last bit of Haggai. We're in chapter 2, and we will be beginning in verse 20 and reading through to the end, verse 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and the riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother, And on that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. God, I pray that we would, even as we handle some of the most difficult and confusing parts of Scripture and the prophets, that we would get to know you, that we would glean from your word, your character, your attributes, your love for mankind, and your mission to redeem us to yourself through Christ Jesus. I pray that we would see that story, that mission, and that love this morning in Haggai and in the life of Zerubbabel. And I pray, God, in everything that we would be changed, that we would be transformed, all for your glory to build your kingdom all in the name of Christ. Amen. So this series, we started out a few weeks ago by talking about the exile and what happened as they ended exile and coming out of uh, Persia and Babylon back to Jerusalem for the purpose of rebuilding uh, the house of the Lord. And we talked about how exile was never meant to be the end of the story. And that is a a sort of running theme throughout the whole book of Haggai. And I want to uh, keep I want you to keep that in the forefront of your mind even today as we wrap up the book of Haggai. And then the week after that, we talked about how sometimes instead of scolding, we just need a gentle nudge. And that was Haggai coming to the people and saying, hey, it's been over 15 years since you stopped this project. It's time to get back at it again. It's time to get going and gently reminding them in a compassionate, gracious way. And then we talked about how it is God's presence and nothing else that makes his house great. It is not the building itself. It's not the treasures or the riches or even the people or the programs involved. It is God's presence. And then last week, how God alone can make unclean things clean. And today, as we wrap up Haggai, the big idea that I want you to have in mind is this. 
God keeps his promises and brings beauty from brokenness. God keeps his promises and brings beauty from brokenness. Now, to understand this, what we're going to do is look a little bit closely about this guy himself, Zerubbabel. And when we see, as we come to the text, number one, we get the date, the same that we have with the other three visions. We know that this is sort of later that same day as the same uh, passage we talked about last week, December 18th, 520 BC. There is this sense of, okay, I've got this word from the Lord for you priests, and now I also have this word for you specifically, Zerubbabel. And then there is this interesting phrase, to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. And I want your attention to really hook on that title because it's a little bit different. All, I mean, so, so many of the prophets have a unique ministry in speaking directly to kings. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah and he said to King Uzziah, the word of the Lord came to uh, you know, Nathan, and he said to King David. The word of the Lord came to... And these, these prophets are ministering to kings. And yet here, Haggai is ministering not to a king, but to the governor of Judah. It reminded me a little bit of, uh, of something else. So this, this Friday... I don't know if your calendars are marked, but this Friday is exactly one year since Canada got a new head of state. This guy. And when you Google Canada head of state, you learn he is King Charles III, King of Canada, among other things. Now, I fully recognize... <laughs> My notes say, pause for rousing chants of long live the king, but no, is that not, no. Uh, listen, listen. I recognize as an American, this is a very fraught subject to be stepping into. I recognize that we in the States have a very different relationship with the monarchy than maybe you do. I, I want to make no commentary on anything political or republicanism versus monarchy or anything like that, okay? All that I want to point out here in this is that it's a little bit weird. It's a little bit weird that included in this guy's title is King of Canada, and King of Jamaica, and King of Australia, and King of Tuvalu. Like, <laughs> this guy sitting in London is also king of all of these other places, and when you look at the Wikipedia page for Papua New Guinea, you look at head of state, and you see this dude. It's a little weird, okay? In the same way, I think that there is something about Haggai addressing Zerubbabel as governor of Judah that makes him go, thank you for that. Thank you for reminding me that I am not the king, that someone else is the king. And it makes you go, hang on, why is Darius the king? This guy who sits over 1,200 kilometers away in, and in the, between there are several like ethno-linguistic groups why is he king of Judah? This guy has never been to Judah, so far as we know. This guy has nothing to... Why does he get to be the king? And I have to kind of put myself in Zerubbabel's shoes a little bit today. 
and think about what he must be feeling as he comes, as he leads people back into Judah, as he, carrying the royal bloodline of Judah, of the kings that went before him, bears this title of governor. And to look at that, we have to look at his family a little bit. See, one of the very last, let's say the last good king of Judah was this guy named Josiah. King for a long time, started at a very young age, was an amazing king. He established these phenomenal reforms in Judah. He cleaned out the temple. He found the law. Can you imagine that? Like, they lost the Bible. They were like, and just imagine some custodian, like, oh, he'll want to see this. And he said, oh, we got to we got to start doing all this stuff again. we got to start these festivals. we got to do these feasts. we got to look at these holidays and these special spiritual days that God has prescribed for our worship. And Josiah institutes these amazing reforms. And after him, his sons do a terrible job. After Josiah, you have three of his sons and one of his grandsons who are all Awful kings who completely and utterly ignore all of, the, uh, all of the, the reforms and revival that Josiah had been trying to institute, despite the fact that other prophets are coming to them and saying, like, hey, you guys need to do these, these things. And it's a total wash, and it's awful, and they cannot stem the tide of the, uh, the invasion of the Babylonians, and so they are carried off into exile. But one of these guys has a grandson... Zerubbabel. In fact, his name means born, born in Babylon, okay? But this guy is the great-grandson of King Josiah. He is the heir to the throne, and he is ready. He has taken up the very serious charge to come back and build the house of the Lord, and he has faithfully done that. He has gathered up the remnant of the people, and come and returned as the rightful heir to the throne in Jerusalem. And not just that. It is not just Josiah that he is connected to. The very blood of King David runs in his veins. And we have an even bigger reason to think that Zerubbabel would think, hey, now is my time to take the throne. Now is my time to take my rightful place as king of Judah. Because hundreds of years before this, before even the first temple had been built, God, in a vision and through a prophet, talks to King David, and he gives him instructions about this house that he wants to be built, this temple where his glory will dwell among the people, where people can come and encounter God and experience God's presence. And part of that includes this promise. If we go all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, I want to read to you verses 12 and 13. This is God talking to King David. And he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
And for a people group that has clung to this promise for hundreds of years, that have repeated it, that have held this as this source of hope and inspiration, they're telling themselves all throughout a split kingdom and wars and terrible kings and then exile. They are reminding themselves of God's promise to them. You have to read this and how could you not think of Zerubbabel? His offspring, yes, this is David's offspring. He's going to come from your very blood, of course. And we're going to establish his kingdom. He's going to build a house for the Lord's name. Yes, check, check, check. He's done it all. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Why isn't this guy king? And I might be reading into this, my own kind of sense of emotion and frustration and we don't get a lot of what Zerubbabel thought about this, but there is a certain sort of like, why isn't he king? It's a little weird that Darius is the king. Why doesn't Zerubbabel get to take his rightful place on the throne? And be, be sure, Zerubbabel absolutely deserves credit for building this temple. And if we go back to the text... What God is saying to Zerubbabel in the midst of this, in the midst of these emotions, in the midst of finally starting a work of building this temple, and it will be completed. Eventually it is completed, and Zerubbabel deserves the credit for that. And God says, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Almost like saying, you don't want to be king. Look what happens to those guys. And God does this. The story, basically from the start of the exile all the way through human history, even, even the Bible history, but beyond that, is this sort of rise and fall of various kingdoms and empires, and every one of them eventually crumbles to nothing, to dust. Every one of these kings eventually is overthrown or dies or is forgotten. And God is saying, look, these kingdoms, these empires, they are going to rise and fall. They will come and they will go. Don't worry about that. I've got something better. For you, I've got something even greater in mind when I think about you, Zerubbabel. And the emphasis here is that God keeps his promises and he brings beauty from brokenness. In fact, even as he is saying this to him this second time, notice what he calls him. He doesn't say Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. He calls him Zerubbabel, my servant. I've got an even better title for you than governor. I've got an even better title than king, my servant. Because you've got a place in history that you don't even see how big and important and how wonderful it is in bringing beauty to my kingdom. Because that is what God is doing. Because of the exile, 
Hear me say that again. Because of the exile, not despite it, it wasn't some hiccup, it wasn't some uh, you know, detour from the plan. Because of the exile and the return and the things that the remnant of Judah learned while they were there and the passion and the endurance and the commitment to God's mission for them that they brought back in building this, because of that and in keeping this Davidic line, because of them, we get the greatest gift God has ever given to his people. Himself, his son, Jesus, the long-promised Messiah. You know where we read Zerubbabel's name, not just in the Old Testament? It is in the very genealogy of Christ. Both Matthew and Luke open their Gospels by saying, hey, here's how God keeps his promises. He said, I am sending someone whose kingdom is not going to be like all these other schmucks' kingdoms. It's going to last forever. I am sending someone who's going to sit on David's throne forever. And it's hard to see that in the moment. I can't imagine Zerubbabel thinks that and sees that and understands that place in all of the ways that by his faithfulness and his obedience to God, God is taking their, their experience and saying, do you see how I was fulfilling my promise the whole time? Do you see how the whole time my hand was on this? Do you see how at the end of it all, we're going to look back and go, whoa, that's what God was doing. Incredible. And he gives them, he says, I am going to make you like a signet ring. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you a signet ring. Plenty of people have signet rings. We see this elsewhere in scripture. Other uh, leaders and um, kings, even Darius has one, uh, we see. And it is this symbol of authority. It is a symbol of royalty, of monarchy, of a rightful place on the throne. And what God is saying to Zerubbabel is, hey, I'm going to make you like a signet ring. You will provide a way for the true king to take his place on the throne. Elsewhere in, uh, in Zechariah, if you remember, several weeks ago, I talked about how Haggai and Zechariah um, were prophesying together, ministering to the people at the same time. And it's just a few years later that Zechariah has something to say about this very idea. He says in, in chapter 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth month and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. And you might be thinking, what? What are these fasts about? What's, what's that all about? Well, here's what's happening. All throughout Judah getting overthrown and taken into exile, some really crummy things happen to them. They get invaded by Babylon. They lose a very strong military position. The temple gets destroyed. The temple gets plundered, and those goods, those treasures taken off by Nebuchadnezzar back to Babylon. And in fact, the very last person that they had, Gedaliah, is finally overthrown and killed and deposed, and there is no more bloodline in Judah, they are all exiled. And for each of those events, they have this fast. For the whole time that they're in exile, they fast, they remember, they lament. 
And what God is saying to the people through Zechariah is not, we're going to be done with those fasts. Those times of solemn lament, they're done, don't do them anymore. What he's saying is, I'm going to take them and I'm going to change them. I'm going to repurpose them. I'm going to recontextualize them into a truer story that I am writing and you are seeing unfolded before your very eyes when you step back and you look at the full scope of history. God keeps his promises and he brings beauty from brokenness and he takes sadness and he turns it into joy and he brings beauty from hurt and broken things. That is the power of God's redemptive love towards us. And you might be thinking, well, wasn't the whole point the temple? No, <laughs> the whole point was not the temple. The whole point of this endeavor was how do we facilitate a place where people will come and experience the presence of God? And for Haggai and Zerubbabel and Joshua and the whole remnant that returned, yes, that meant building a temple. Yes, that meant a place where they could come and have a convocation and celebrate these, these feasts and festivals of worship and experience God's presence. But the temple was never meant to be the end-all, be-all. In fact, we we would rightly ask the question, what, what happens to the temple? What goes on with this thing? Even in Jesus' time, Jesus is, he has respect for the temple, but Jesus does not have a reverence for the temple like a lot of other people, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In fact, he, you know, when, he, when he's uh, flipping over tables and stuff and they go, what authority do you have? And he tells this story of, you know, this temple is going to be torn down and three days later r r risen up. And they're like, this temple took years to be. And there's this parenthetical note that's like, by the way, he was talking about himself. We didn't get it at the time, but afterwards we understood. Oh, he's the temple. Okay, right, right, right. In fact, there's this, there's, this, uh, there's this time in Matthew, the first, first bit of Matthew in 24, uh, Matthew 24, uh, first couple of verses there, where as they're exiting the temple, all of the disciples are like, oh, isn't this just a beautiful temple? Jesus, don't you, come on, Jesus, can't you just admire this? And Jesus goes, you know what's going to happen to this temple? This beautiful building? Give it a few years, dust, all of it. Not one stone is going to sit on another. This temple is going to be gone. Why? Because the temple's bad? No, the temple just becomes obsolete. Because if the temple is a place for people to come and experience God's love and see who God really, truly is, Jesus is saying, I am here. I'm the better temple. You want to know what God is like? Don't go to the temple. Come to me. Experience me. All the fullness of God dwells in me. Scripture tells us this in Colossians. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The temple was never the point. God's presence coming in and experiencing who God is was always what God had in mind. And what he is saying here to Zerubbabel is, I am sending through you, because of you, because of your faithfulness, the best manifestation of who I am this world has ever seen. And I'm going to do great, great things. Just you watch. And it's not just that. It's not just the temple gets destroyed. 
And it isn't just that Jesus becomes this better version of the temple, this way that we can look and see here is God dwelling among us. This very verse in Colossians goes on in the very next verse to say, and you, the people to whom Paul is talking, the church in Colossae, and I think rightly we could think of this in our own sense too. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Hey, by the way, in the same way that the entire full presence of God dwelt in Jesus in bodily form, the same Spirit of God that came and indwelled in the temple where people would come and experience His glory, I have put that same Spirit of God inside of you. The Holy Spirit lives in us. If you are a believer and a follower of Jesus, He has put the Spirit of God inside of you to experience the joy he is leading us to, the hope he is pointing us towards, the conviction that we need at times, the sanctification that he is doing in our lives, all of those things that happened through the temple and through the community before. Jesus is saying, I am putting him inside of you. How cool is that? In fact, Peter when he writes to people who are suffering this massive persecution and he's trying to encourage them, and in the wake of all that is happening in Judah and in Jerusalem and the temple being destroyed, he makes this analogy. First Peter chapter 2, he says, As you come in, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This whole verse screams temple. You read this and you go, that's what the temple was for. And what Peter is saying is, yeah, that's all of you now. Before Jesus, we all had to gather in and experience God's presence here but now, because of Jesus, because of his blood, because of all of this gunk in our lives, because of persecution, because of death, because of bloodshed, because of exile, Christ has made it possible that God's very spirit is put inside of you. And as you go to the uttermost parts of the earth, you yourself become a conduit for people to experience God's presence. And when we meet here on a Sunday morning or when the youth come on a Thursday or Thursday or a Friday night, Friday night this week, Thursday normally, okay? Or when the kids meet here or when people come for a prayer service or for worship, it is not the building that enables us to experience God's presence. It is the Holy Spirit living inside of us that we can encourage one another, that we can pray for one another, that we can share each other's burdens, that we can convict and call each other out on sin, all for God's glory, and it doesn't just have to happen here. I hope it happens everywhere you go as you leave this place Monday through Saturday. I hope it happens in your houses, in your schools, in your workplaces, that you yourself as a temple are ushering in the presence of God when people meet you and they go, there's something different about her. Man, that guy got, he's got something and I want it. 
That is what Peter is saying. You yourself have become like the temple. We don't need that thing anymore because God keeps his promises and he brings beauty from brokenness. It's all because of the exile. It's all because of death. It's all because of the persecution that the church uh, faces, that they're disbanded and they're dispersed all over the world. God is bringing great beauty out of brokenness, and he's keeping his promise to Judah, to David, to all of mankind and Adam and Eve, to all of us here and now, he is keeping his promises. So what? What are we supposed to do with this? How then are we meant to act? I've already <laughs> hinted at most of it, I hope. I hope that you see yourselves as temples. I hope that you see yourself as a conduit for people to come and experience God's presence because of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. But I also hope that you feel a sense of hope and a perspective that God is elevating to look at the big picture. All throughout Haggai, we have been talking about how God is constantly redirecting our focus and redirecting, elevating our perspective, looking towards hope. Exile was never meant to be the end of the story. And God keeps his promises and he is bringing beauty out of brokenness. And I think that we all share this story. I think that if we could pull everyone in here, we would see you. When you step back and you look at some of the broken times in your life, you're going, man, what an amazing, incredible work God is doing. What an impressive feat that he is redeeming us constantly by the blood of his son and in, the, in his spirit living inside of us to bring something beautiful into the world and building his kingdom. I was chatting with someone this week, talked about a really difficult season and how instead of thinking of this as just the worst and it's the pits and it's the dump, you know what? This God has something for me. God is teaching me something. God is training me and molding me and discipling me in this time in a way I wouldn't get any other way. This week I, uh, I met with someone who chatted with me about some history here locally. And uh, I learned that the guy that, that founded Bishop's University did so because he wanted a place to train up young people in order to minister and be equipped uh, to proclaim the gospel. And he built this house that he wanted to stand and, and to service to that goal. And that same house fell into disrepair and was forgotten about, at times has been a brothel and a gambling house. And yet today, we call it the Quebec House of Prayer. And it stands as something that has been repurposed. And not despite, but because of its history, it is engaging the community in a way that says, we want this to be a place where people come and encounter God, redeeming it to its original purpose and turning something really beautiful from something broken because God keeps his promises and he brings beauty from brokenness. We have opportunities all over the place to proclaim this very truth. A few weeks ago, I had 
dinner with uh, Robin and Lynn, and it, it occurs to me now, no one is going to want to have dinner or coffee with me, because you're like, I'm going to wind up in a sermon, aren't I? Um, I have asked for permission, okay? I, I, anytime I invite you to coffee, it should come with a, a warning. Anything you do or say can be used as a sermon illustration. Um, no, I, prom- I promise, I will ask permission. I don't know if you know this, Lynn makes some really beautiful art. And what she makes it out of is broken things. Pots and cups and dishes and plates and things like that. And when they break, she, she sees, oh, this is what it was really meant to be. And I remember going uh, over to their house for dinner and, and seeing um, this, this one on the right here and thinking, like, that is great. That is really spectacular. I mean, this, this, there's something really beautiful in something that is broken. And this is her heart. What Lynn wants to do is to tell this very story. When she was telling me about these pieces, I I just, I want to quote her so that I get this right. She said, dealing with the reality of brokenness in all its drama and seemingly overwhelming defeat, but really the pieces can be put back together in a new and meaningful and beautiful creation that surpasses expectations and breathes new hope and a new path. The organic material is still the same, but everything has changed about it. Isn't that great? Isn't that lovely? I think that if we're honest, we can look at what God is doing in all of us. I want to ask this rhetorical question, maybe not so rhetorical, Do you understand what God is doing in your life through the brokenness? Do this. No, you don't. (laughs) You don't get it. I don't get it either. I don't understand. I don't know why God puts us through hard seasons sometimes. I don't know why he creates this this, this sense of, of brokenness and hurt and detachment and frustration that I experience in my life. But I have lived long enough and I have experienced it often enough to know that God brings beauty out of brokenness. God is doing something in us, in our lives, so much bigger than you or I could ever see. I don't think for a minute Zerubbabel had any idea that because of his faithfulness, because of coming back to Judah, because of restoring the bloodline of David, he was going to help bring into the world Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. I don't think he knew and understood that. And you have no clue what God is doing in your story. You have no clue how God is using you or your hurts or your frustration or tension or brokenness to bring beauty and to draw others closer to him because God keeps his promises and he brings beauty from brokenness. There is something really spectacular about looking and knowing that whatever God is doing, he's got a plan. And we just haven't seen the full picture yet. Let's pray. God, thank you for the work that you are doing in our lives. Thank you that you are awesome and powerful and mighty and righteous in such a way that you can turn all things into your glory. You can take our shame and turn it into something beautiful. You can take our rent wretched disobedience and turn it into building your kingdom. 
that you are taking us, all of us, and changing us, molding us, making us more like your son to build something truly, wonderfully beautiful. God, thank you for the testimony of Zerubbabel, for his faithfulness, and I pray that we too would be faithful in obeying your word, in ignoring the day-to-day frustration, knowing you have a bigger plan in mind and you are doing something so much bigger than we could ever possibly fathom in this lifetime. Thank you for turning our brokenness into beauty. We pray all of it in the name of Christ. Amen.